Welcome back to the ASCA Viewpoints podcast. We're glad to have you join us for our continuation of the discussion on freedom of expression. Today's episode, much like our first episode, was recorded before the neo-Nazi rally and subsequent violence in Charlottesville, Virginia. So you're not going to hear us touch on that. It was also then recorded before President Trump rescinded the DREAM Act and before Secretary DeVos made the announcement about the review of Title IX guidance. Before we dig into the meat and potatoes of this episode, I want to share with you a couple of words from the New York University student body president, Juan Calero. So we welcomed about 6,800 first-year students to Atlantic Barclays Center just last week here at NYU. And for those of you who've taken a look at NYU's logo, you'll see that it's a torch. And torches are probably the most recognizable symbol that's associated with the New York University brand. So he had some words to say on that, and they were very resonant, so I'm going to share those now. He says, The most familiar of NYU's symbols is the torch. Torches are one of those things that develop naturally across human civilization, independent of any contact. Perhaps this is because it is easy to be scared of the dark, of the cold, of what is unfamiliar, and a desire to have light, warmth, and a sense of security. While recent events may be forcing us to associate torches with hateful concepts and ideas like white supremacy and ethnic genocide, I ask all of you to consider. We each carry a torch with us, some of us perhaps already burning brightly, and some of us scared to light them. But in times like these, I ask you to give and take each other's fire and light with urgency and compassion. See, the world is a mess, and not a single person you meet or will meet has a perfect solution. We seem to be stuck between an outbreak of wars, both civil and otherwise, ongoing plagues of natural disasters with little to no aid sent, and an increasingly unstable economy and future. We all know that 20th century solutions aren't going to fix 21st century problems. More than that, and listen carefully, there will never be one discourse to rule them all. There is no one set of beliefs one way to live our lives that will be universally and eternally accepted by every person on earth. There is no such thing as perfect ideology. You will never stop learning, changing, and growing who you are as a person, neither in your life nor throughout your time at your institution. So thank you, Juan Calero, for those words, and I hope you enjoy our second episode. Welcome to the ASCA Viewpoints Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the student conduct profession in higher education. I'm Jill Creighton, your Viewpoints host. Today's episode features Will Creeley. Will began defending student and faculty rights for FIRE, or the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, in 2006 after he graduated from the New York University School of Law. He served as an associate executive editor for the NYU Law Review while there, and he has spoken to students, faculty, administrators, and attorneys at events across the country. He led FIRE's continuing legal education programs in New York, Pennsylvania, and online. Will edited the second edition of FIRE's Guide to Due Process and Campus Justice and co-edited the second edition of FIRE's Guide to Free Speech on Campus. Will has co-authored amicus curiae briefs submitted to a number of courts, including to the Supreme Court of the United States and the United States Courts of Appeals for the 3rd, 9th, and 11th Circuits. Will has appeared on national cable television and radio on behalf of FIRE, and Will's writing has been published by the Chronicle of Higher Education, Jurist, Inside Higher Ed, 
Daily Journal and the Charleston Law Review, the Providence Journal, and many other outlets. Will is a member in good standing of the New York State Bar and the First Amendment Lawyers Association. He's a proud native of Buffalo, New York, and he lives in Philadelphia with his wife and children. Welcome to the podcast, Will Creeley. Will is the Senior Vice President for Legal and Public Advocacy at FIRE, which is uh, the acronym for Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Welcome, Will. Thank you so much, Jill. It is a pleasure to be here, and thank you for spelling out that long official name for FIRE. It is a real devil to get on small insurance forms when you're at the doctor's office, but I've gotten good at it over the years. We are uh, very familiar with the Association for Student Conduct Administration with the abbreviation alphabet soup situation in higher ed. Right, right, that's right. Well, I'm glad to be talking to you today, and I think this is a great conversation for the podcast because our goal with the ASCA Viewpoints podcast is really to talk about and welcome different viewpoints on issues in student conduct. And I think that in some ways, you know, FIRE has been infamous. In some ways, it has been extraordinarily valuable viewpoint to have at every annual conference. And as we talk about, you know, the balancing of of student rights, student needs, and, and where freedom of expression begins and where harassment begins. Those are kind of things that, you know, we're all focused on these days. But can you tell us before we kind of jump into the the meat and potatoes, just how did you get to where you are now? What's your journey into FIRE? Boy, that's a great question. Uh, (laughs) How much time do we got? So I went to uh, NYU, uh, your institution, as an undergrad and as a law student. As an undergrad, I was at the Gallatin School of Individualized Study, uh, where I was a happy refugee from the much larger, much more intimidating College of Arts and Sciences. I transferred after my freshman year. And I did that because I wanted to do a couple things that weren't quite on the uh, College of Arts and Sciences uh, menu. I wanted to kind of follow um, my nose, so to speak, and find out what I was interested in. I went to school thinking I'd be a journalism major. I uh, did a lot of freelance music journalism uh, as an undergrad, and then decided that I really liked critical theory. Uh, so I, I read an awful lot of critical theory, an awful lot of history, and graduated with a, a degree that was kind of a mix of everything. And I went off to law school immediately thereafter, uh, which is something I'm, I'm not sure I really recommend, uh, because I, I thought that I needed to uh, have a JD after my name to speak the language of power, <laughs> as I was conceiving of it at the time. And I'm not sure I was all that far off. You know, I kind of thought that if I learned how to be a lawyer, how to uh, interpret the law, that it would be a little bit like studying Latin in the 10th century, you know, that I would be uh, suddenly ushered into a secret realm where things got done uh, and uh, politicians had to listen to you uh, and you could really kind of participate in democracy at, a, at an advanced level. So that was, that, was, that was my grandiose understandings of what I was doing. And the other, the flip side, of course, is that I was 22 uh, and the prospect of taking on more massive student debt did not phase me. Uh, I, uh, I was happy to stay in New York and to, to go to NYU and really thrilled by the company of folks I had. So that's kind of a, a long-winded way of explaining why I went to law school. 
which at the time, because I didn't take a break after undergrad, it kind of felt like grade 17, you know, except there I was. And all of a sudden, I realized things got very serious uh, indeed very quickly. Uh, I realized pretty early on in law school that a lot of folks were there to study corporate law which I wasn't uh, interested in uh, at all. I had been doing a lot of uh, student activism for various progressive causes as an undergrad, and uh, the idea of going to big law just wasn't interesting to me. Uh, on the other hand, the idea of doing First Amendment law uh, was fascinating to me. You know, I, I'd done that music journalism in my head, been working since high school and worked all through law school, uh, in various music capacities. So uh, the idea of standing up for free speech was something that was really exciting for me. And having just been a student activist, uh, the idea of working for students and their right to free speech was also really exciting for me. So I ended up uh, as a fire legal intern the summer after my first year of law school uh, when uh, then fire director of legal and public advocacy Greg Lukianoff uh, was living in Brooklyn. And so he was at his place in Brooklyn and I was at my place in Brooklyn and I worked from home and uh, we uh, uh, met each other a couple times uh, just to cover uh, the ground that he wanted me to work on. And I spent a really great summer doing a lot of interesting research and, and writing. And I liked it so much that uh, by the time I finished my legal education and, and received a job offer for fire, I, I jumped at it. It seemed to me uh, like a good way to do some of the things that I'd hoped uh, a legal education would enable me to do. That is to stand up for what I thought was right, to make sure that others could stand up for what they thought was right, to marshal uh, legal precedent in support of people's rights to express themselves. And so, yeah, it seemed like a good fit. And when I got here to fire in 2006, it was a much different time. Uh, it was the second term of the Bush administration. Uh, the uh, situation on campus was in some ways very familiar, but in other ways uh, remarkably different. We had to uh, introduce uh, social media cases by talking about popular social networking site, facebook.com, instead of just saying Facebook. Uh, you know, things were, things were a little bit different. And, uh, and when I boring. got, yeah, exactly. When I got to fire, there were about, I, I want to say I was maybe the 12th employee. And now at last count, uh, as you know from just trying to navigate our, our our dial by name directory, I think we're up to fifty or so. So it was a really interesting time, and and that's kind of the the short but also a little long version of how I got here. Excellent. So the landscape certainly has changed since two thousand six. We've seen, I think, uh, a lot of freedom of expression cases kind of reiterate themselves in a lot of ways from eras, uh, you know, well before the time that you were working at FIRE. So what have you seen in terms of trends lately? Oh, boy, that's a good question. Uh, and I, I kind of first of all want to say great insight to note that some of these things seem familiar, that they've come around again, that they're variations on a theme. That is so important. And having been at FIRE now for going on uh, 11 years, which is shocking to say out loud. It's something I realize more and more. Uh, the student conduct professionals who've been working the beat for a long time will will know uh, what you and I are talking about here. A couple of years ago, it was Bill Ayers, a former Weather Underground member uh, and then education policy expert uh, and noted friend of Barack Obama's, uh, who was being uh, hit with threats of violence and uh, and institutional cancellations before he came to to speak on the campus. Uh, he actually had to go to court in Wyoming because he the University of Wyoming uh, canceled an appearance of his and 
This past semester, it's been folks like uh, right-wing provocateur Mario Yiannopoulos or his counterpart uh, Ann Coulter, uh, who have been precipitating those same kind of threats of violence and cancellation. So what comes around goes around to some extent. They, I often feel like I'm handling different variations on a theme. There are always new twists and turns, but uh, it seems like some of the what's old is new again. The trends come back around. But briefly, what, what are we seeing for trends? Well, this has been a really depressing uh, semester uh, because of uh, threats of violence. That is the thing that's keeping me up at night lately, uh, threats of violence against speakers. And then in this past month, particularly threats of violence against faculty members. And that uh, is an interesting challenge. I'd be curious to hear uh, ASCA's take on, on uh, what to do when uh, an outspoken student or faculty member invites uh, the attention of uh, oftentimes anonymous online internet folks. I, I think trolls is almost even too nice of a word for them because what they're doing is criminal, uh, who are threatening the lives uh, or, or of faculty or students or even the campus itself. I mean, that's that's just that's antithetical to the concepts of free speech that we at Fire Champion, as I can imagine, uh, and deserves the harshest condemnation. But that's that's the saddest, uh, most uh, searing trend that I can think of right now. Sure. And kind of thinking about what you're seeing now with the change, you're now in your third administration presidentially in your tenure with FIRE. What are you seeing as as having changed? What's kind of been the same? What's iteratively coming around again? Yeah, that's a, a great question. You know, it, one thing that was really interesting in the, the uh, kind of closing years of uh, President Obama's second term uh, was his take on campus speech controversies and the idea that some some speakers should be banned uh, out of a sense of uh, protecting a community or, or protecting physical safety. And President Obama was uh, really commendably clear and, and direct on those points uh, in, in his final few years, making the point that when someone disagrees with you, the answer is not to silence them, but to take them on, you know, to learn from them, uh, to see what common ground you might have. And if you don't have any common ground to, uh, to challenge their ideas and to best them in argument, I mean, that's kind of the, the liberal, uh, ideal. And I don't mean liberal, like political liberal, I mean, like liberal, like, uh, liberal enlightenment, uh, the idea that reason will will triumph and, and we can figure out answers to the problems before us, uh, hypotheses and experiments and, and refinement. So that was really welcome. Um, it's hard to get a sense of the current administration uh, just yet. Uh, we're, I think all of us are kind of waiting with bated breath to see what happens to the Office for Civil Rights and the Department of Education more generally. Uh, we, uh, we're all, I think, in the same uncertain boat. Things seem to be moving more slowly than we might have anticipated. I, I'm not sure uh, if any of us really know what to expect. The, with regard to free speech, there was an interesting moment uh, yeah, during commencement season this year when Vice President Mike Pence addressed Notre Dame, the commencement speaker there, and a number of students walked out, uh, and we had calls from the right to say, well, you know, isn't this disrespectful and uh, aren't these uh, these students ungrateful? And we said, of course not. They are exercising their own free speech rights. I mean, they are not disrupting uh, the vice president's speech. They're not uh, preventing him from being heard by others, but they are engaging in their own expressive activity, symbolic activity. They're standing up and walking out. Uh, and that was powerful. That was a, a powerful thing to explain. I remember I did a uh, a radio hit on a conservative Pennsylvania radio show, and I, 
think the the hosts maybe hadn't done their their homework uh, on. I don't know what they. I think they expected uh, me to answer. Yeah, those students. Can you believe them? And I said. <laughs> No, those students are doing exactly what they should do. You know, they feel morally compelled to to make a stand, and they're doing so. But they are uh, doing it in the uh, in the best tradition of uh, of free speech. They're making their point uh, without uh, preventing anybody else from making theirs, and that was really interesting. I think that's really great insight in terms of I think one of the places where Fire and ASCA share a common core value is that we are looking out for the interests of all students, regardless of their viewpoint, in terms of getting fair and equitable treatment under our policies and for you under the law. But I think we also have some tension about the best way to do that. What advice or information do you really want student conduct officers to know and to hear about what your work is about and how you're working to protect students? Sure. I I think the first thing that I always try to do whenever I've had the uh, privilege of addressing uh, ASCA uh, at the annual conference, uh, something I wasn't able to do last year, and, and maybe we'll be able to do this year. We'll see if this uh, this now three-week-old daughter will, will let me uh, get away come the winter. But one thing I always try and do is make clear that we're here to uh, help, first and foremost, if uh, we can be proactively useful uh, and provide advice before conflict hits, before you've got the media calling you up, before you've got grandstanding, uh, you know, on, on cable news and, you know, all the rest of it. Uh, if we can say, hey, here are some basically clean policies. If you stick to these now, you'll be in good shape. Or uh, here's how to uh, devise a, a best practices for misconduct cases, and that's all misconduct, to make sure that uh, both the accusing student and the accused student have a, a fair shake. Uh, we're happy to help kind of proactively and, and prior to the crisis. That's that's our number one. Our, our lines are always open, and we actually have a, a record number of what we call green light schools recently uh, announced uh, more than we've ever had before, and that's really largely the result of our working directly with uh, student conduct administrators to revise policies that may be problematic uh, from an expressive point of view to make sure that they're compliant with the First Amendment uh, at public schools and compliant with promises of free expression at private schools. So, number one, that we're here to help, uh, first of all. And then the, the second point I guess I would make is uh, one that we make early on in our guide to uh, uh, due process and campus justice, uh, that I think that because in many systems the student conduct administrator is also charged with the role of prosecutor, to use the term loosely, that there can be a sense that if you're for due process, you're necessarily uh, against uh, the school or against the uh, alleged victim. And uh, one point I, I really try to stress is that a fair process benefits everybody, uh, that if you have solid procedural protections in place that, that give everybody a fair hearing, make sure that everybody has notice of the charges, everybody has an adequate opportunity to respond, everybody can review all the evidence, that the necessary evidence is, is, uh, is available, et cetera, that you, your results your process will be stronger and your results will be stronger and that will mean justice for everybody. You kind of, to, I'm going to uh, steal or paraphrase uh, the great Gary Pavella's line, uh, hear, hear the case first and decide later. I think, I think he said something like that. And it's always struck me as uh, simple but really important wisdom. And last but not least, I, I guess I'll say that one of the fun things for me going to ASCA all, all these years is to make friends with some of the folks uh, who work with 
uh, NKERM. And, you know, we've had our battles with, with NKERM over the years, we've had our disagreements and our, our back and forths. But folks like Dr. Lowry and Sonny Schuster and others, you know, I, I really uh, value their expertise and input. They've been doing this longer than I have, uh, and they've seen a lot more uh, than I have from various perspectives. So I, I really like talking to them. And one thing that's been interesting to me in recent years to see is, uh, particularly with this last NKERM white paper, is kind of a convergence from FIRE and, and NKERM on some of the problems uh, with regard to procedural protections on campus. You know, it's not like we're quite singing out of the same hymn book, but we are, you know, I, I think there's kind of a, a shared recognition. And even from some victims' rights groups, I was just reading in the Chronicle today a good quote from Laura Dunn of Serve Justice, a victims' rights group uh, from the Northeast, saying, you know, procedural protections, we're happy to work with groups with uh, like FIRE to make sure those are in there. And we have friendly, pretty friendly relationships with, uh, with Laura as well. So, I don't know, I, I guess I just what we're pushing for is a, a recognition that if you've got a good process and it's fairly designed, that it gives everybody a fair shake, uh, you're not shorting either party. I mean, that is, that is equity. You know, that is making sure that uh, everybody's got a, a fair chance, the same chance that you'd want if it was uh, your best friend or your spouse or your brother or sister or nephew or niece who was accused of something. Those, those are processes that you want to make sure you're administering. Thank you. I think the Gary Pavella quote that you cited, um, I think was one of the first things I was ever taught as a conduct officer when I was way back um, as a grad student, you know, hear the case before you decide it. And I think that's really the... Right. That's it. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of like the Hippocratic oath for uh, student conduct. It's so, it's so good. It's so clear and it's a, it's a real lodestar. Definitely. And so simple, but something that I think uh, we are all benefited from being reminded of from time to time, especially mm-hmm. when you know we're seeing similar types of cases iteratively over the years. But you mentioned mm-hmm. that you're, you're partnering with everyone from uh, victims' rights advocacy groups through uh, you know, the NCRM group and, and other areas. What are some of the more detailed common things that you're, you're seeing across everyone's needs? Well, that's a, a good question. And I should be clear, when we say partnering, we're, we're kind of just in communication, put it like sure. that. I don't want to suggest a formal partnership just yet, although we can we can hope and we do work towards those kinds of things. Well, I, I think that there's, you know, I mean, this is not, a, I think, a really particularly novel observation by me, but I think that uh, in recent years there's been a, uh, given the push from the last administration on sexual misconduct and the, I think in some ways very uh, necessary corrective to some of the things that were, were happening on campuses, uh, like, for example, things that are happening in, in Montana, there's been a necessary corrective and a pushback to make sure that sexual misconduct, most particularly, isn't just being swept under the rug, especially in the athletic context, but not, not solely in the athletic context. So in cleaning that up, uh, I wonder if, and I think that the, the, a lot of the cases we've seen bear this out, that there's been a, an overcorrective and now uh, universities out of an abundance of caution and in a real uh, sense of uh, necessary self-protection and self-preservation to kind of overpunish, uh, to uh, sweep the net as broadly as possible, lest you find yourself uh, subjected to a federal audit by uh, the Office for Civil Rights or, uh, you know, and, and you're called to account on cases uh, why didn't you do X? Why don't you do Y? Why don't you do Z? So yeah, it's it's kind of a, a contra to Pavela. It's kind of a shoot first, ask questions later stance. And I think that that's where we've seen some of the the overreach. And one thing that really I think bears repeating is that that overreach ultimately 
uh, redounds to the detriment of, of victims. And that, that, I think, is is for sure. And you see groups like Know Your Nine start very smartly in recent years to recognize the importance of fair processes uh, for everybody. Because if you have overreach, right, if you have abuses of, of due process, what ends up happening is either those results will be subject to challenge in court uh, and may be overturned, or uh, they will become fodder for uh, calls for broader reform that may or may not have any basis uh, in uh, in the law. You know, there's a uh, uh, an interesting set of uh, developments down in Georgia uh, a couple of years ago. I, I, I think now, although I'm quickly losing any sense of uh, of time, now that I have two small children, to go where a state representative in Georgia was really pushing for very broad rollbacks of the uh, of the uh, mandates from the Department of Education, some of which fire would support. Uh, but others of which I think might be subject to real debate. So I guess it just when the pendulum swings too far in one dire- direction, it really risks coming back, hurtling back in the other direction too hard. What, what FIRE would like to see, thinking of the new administration, uh, what FIRE would like to see is everybody come to the table. It's groups like Know Your Nine, NCIRM, uh, ASCA, uh, NACUA, uh, Serve Justice, et cetera, uh, to hammer out, uh, a process collectively, a set of federal leg- regulations collectively to get that transparency and to get that stakeholder involvement uh, that we did not have with the uh, 2011 DCL to make sure that uh, we can thread the needle between uh, making campuses safe for everybody, certainly free from discrimination and make sure that sexual assault is taken seriously uh, and handled as, as appropriately and professionally as possible uh, without compromising uh, student civil liberties like due process. So that's kind of my uh, my my hope, you know, if everybody can come together and figure this out, because I, I think it can happen, you know, just like we've seen uh, NCIRM groups like Serve Justice and Know Your Nine uh, recognize the importance of due process, you know, I think there's a real push from the courts, too. So if we don't do it collectively together in, to benefit our, our campuses and our students, courts will do it for us. And I just I sometimes I think that uh, that kind of rule, you know, correction from behind via the courts is a tough way to uh, run an institution. It's it's a lot. It, it lacks for clarity and precision. So, anyway, that that's kind of my, uh, my my two cents there. So I think that the the Title IX area is one that we're all kind of awaiting the guidance from uh, Secretary Betsy DeVos and uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary Candace Jackson to see where we go with that. It's time for the Public Policy and Legislative Issues Committee update. Almost every episode, we'll be hearing from either Preston Croto or Joanna Green, our PPLI co-chairs, about a pressing or current legislative issue or public policy concern that directly affects the student conduct profession. Take it away, PPLI. Hello from the PPLI. As part of our committee's commitment to providing ASCM membership with important updates on public policy and legislative issues, We are thrilled to be offering a few minutes during each podcast on a topic that is currently in the news, whether that be because of a new piece of legislation or it's mentioned in a political speech or news story. As always, our aim is not to align ourselves with any particular party or politician, but rather offer some commentary on the issues as it relates to our work in student conduct and higher education. For this edition, I will be tackling the issue of free speech on college campuses. This is a topic that has come up in multiple news stories across the United States, especially in the months following the election and inauguration of President Donald Trump. 
Some of the more high-profile incidents that have brought the idea of free speech to campuses include the violent protest that caused over $100,000 worth of damage in February at UC Berkeley around the scheduled speaking engagement of right-wing commentator Milo Yiannopoulos, which led to President Trump making a threat over social media to cut the university's federal funding. Later that month, a professor was injured by a violent protest while she was escorting a right-wing commentator and author, Charles Murray, to a speaking event at Middlebury College in Vermont. It was a similar scene at Auburn University in Alabama when a protest over alternative right white nationalist Richard Spencer led to violence and three arrests. And there are currently three students suing UC Berkeley for allegedly preventing popular conservative talk show host and commentator Ann Coulter from speaking on campus, though the university contends that the event was never formally approved and it was acting with detailed knowledge of imminent threats of violence from that same group that turned the Annapolis event violent. Setting aside the nuanced details of each of these cases, it's clear that free speech is one of the most dynamic and important topics in the public sphere today. According to the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, or FIRE, there have been more than 300 attempts to prevent political speakers from coming to college campuses since 2000, about 75% of which were generated by what FIRE labels as, quote, liberal students trying to prevent conservative speech. FIRE says that these attempts at blocking speakers stem from disagreements over immigration, gender, race, religion, sexual orientation, or abortion. According to a 2016 Gallup poll, 31% of students say they frequently or occasionally hear someone at their institution making inappropriate or offensive comments about another person's race, religion, or ethnicity. But 54% of students say that the climate on their campus prevents some people from saying what they believe because other people might find it offensive. Finally, when you compare that to the 78% of students who say that colleges should expose students to all types of speech and viewpoints rather than prohibit biased or offensive speech, it becomes really clear that the so-called war on speech is being waged by many on the fringes of the political spectrum, those that either feel enabled under President Trump to say what they have long believed but previously felt silenced, and those that feel afraid of President Trump's rhetoric that seems to suggest misogyny, racism, homophobia, and more. The federal government took up the issue of free speech on college campuses in a U.S. Senate hearing in June. During the hearing, many senators expressed their concerns over the violence of the previous months, as well as the attacks on free speech and its oppression on college campuses that they said had been going on for years. But one witness made an important distinction. Quote, What brings us here today is that time and again, speech is being effectively banned on campuses because the speaker has ideas that offend that Floyd Abrams, senior counsel at the firm Cahill, Gordon, and Rindle, goes on to say, that's the problem. It does not arise in the main because university administrators are seeking to suppress speech. It arises more often than not because students find it intolerable to have certain speakers appear and certain ideas expressed with which they disagree and they find offensive or even outrageous. Senator Dianne Feinstein, a Democrat from California, defended UC Berkeley and its administration for their role in the spring's offense, arguing that it wasn't Coulter's message that led to cancel her engagement, but rather the threat of repeating the same violence that occurred in the Annapolis event. So what does all this mean for student conduct administrators? Well, first of all, it may be time to review your student handbook and code of conduct to see what policies you have in place around topics like speech, communication, and respect. 
does your code address the way students talk to one another? And do you have a policy about demonstrations? Can your students gather on their own? Or does a protest need to be registered with somewhere like a dean of students office? This may also be a great time to renew acquaintance with your colleagues in your student involvement offices or the advisors for any politically or socially motivated student organizations on your campus. Take this chance to get a sense of their feelings when they return to campus. Do they have any events planned that may cause attention on your campus? And how can you work to support all ideologies while ensuring a safe and secure environment? While the events making the headlines are examples of programs and demonstrations gone wrong, there are countless more examples that happen on our campuses each year that are socially or politically charged, but safe, respectful, and encouraging of dialogue and education. By fostering a student population that feels supported, listened to, and safe, you can help create an environment where your students can grow into informed, respectful, and inclusive citizens. That's it for this update from the PPLI Committee. If you want to learn more or perhaps even join the committee, please feel free to contact Joanna or myself, and we'll be happy to talk with you more. Until next time, take care. Thank you so much, PPLI. And now we'll get back to our conversation with Will Creeley. One of the things that I'm most interested in hearing your thoughts on are the upward trend we're seeing of bullying and harassment in in arenas like social media, and then also mm-hmm. some of the identity-based conflict that we're seeing all across the country when we're seeing our black and brown students that are expressing and and kind of really voicing in a real way the marginalization and discrimination that they're experiencing on our college campuses. So what do you make of that reconciliation between where one person's right to freedom of expression begins to create what others perceive as an unsafe environment? Yeah, that's a, that's the the kind of central question before us is free speech advocates, and it's where we have the most work to do, not just at FIRE, but I think free speech advocates across the country recognize this. I was at a fascinating summit com- convened by PEN America, which is the uh, the national, the, the uh, American arm of the international organization PEN, uh, which is a, a writers and authors uh, protection uh, network that, that fights for free speech uh, globally. And they issued a very thoughtful resp- report uh, on this exact tension. It's titled End Campus for All, Diversity, Inclusion, and Freedom of Speech at U.S. Universities. They released it last November. And they had this, uh, yeah, this really interesting symposium, which was closed to the public, just 30 folks of all different backgrounds and professions, uh, and it included students of color who, you know, for, from, uh, from Mizzou, for example, talking about their experiences and talking about what free speech meant to them. And the point that I think free speech advocates have to make is that free speech is not just for uh, what fire president Greg Lukianoff calls the bigots and the bullies and the robber barons and the bankers. You know, free speech is also for students who do feel marginalized to be able to say, hey, I feel marginalized. That's racist. You know, call that out to use it as an organizing tool. Now, that's also easy for me to say I'm a 36-year-old white guy attorney. And I, I one of the first things I think I always try and do when talking to students, particularly students who have come from communities that have been historically marginalized, uh, is to emphasize that they have seen things that I haven't and that they know things that I don't. And I'm not here to tell them that uh, words don't hurt. But what I am here to tell them is that words can empower uh, and that uh, the surest way to limit one's own political possibilities uh, and to hand a, a weapon of staggering power 
uh, to one's political opponents is to start calling for uh, censorship because it will be inevitably used against you. That's what I think is, is really uh, left for us to do as free speech advocates is to remind uh, the activists that we see on campus. And there are more today than there have been in decades, which for me as a former student advocate uh, and activist is a really exciting thing. Uh, to remind them that free speech has to be their shield, their their power, rather than uh, something that that the other side wields and and is is used only to silence them. You know, you 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 acknowledge the power of words when you tell folks how badly they can hurt you, but you also can acknowledge the possibility of words to repair, to bridge, uh, and to build. And that's something that I think we really have to do. That's kind of frankly the biggest challenge. Uh, that I see for myself personally and professionally. So yeah, it's 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 an ongoing job. You know, what does that mean in practice? I think that means this uh, UC Berkeley law dean, Erwin uh, Chemerinsky, has argued uh, definitional clarity. If you have clearly defined policies, if everybody upon arriving to campus knows what's free speech, what's not free speech, then you can start uh, enforcing the rules of the road a little bit easier and you won't feel, I think you will not, feel like some groups have been left behind or, or the protest of some groups isn't equivalent to the protest of other groups. Because we hear that a good deal, that, you know, if, if the white students bring Milo to campus, uh, then, you know, that's one thing. But if the students of color try and bring uh, DeRay or somebody to campus, then that's a, that's a different deal. And they're just, they're, the Black Lives Matter is treated differently than the, the pro-Trump students, et cetera. We see quite a bit of that. So to, to kind of make sure that the rules are clear for everybody, uh, and that they're evenly enforced. And then the other point I always want to make is that free speech does not mean that you just have to take anything, right? There, there is such a thing as uh, racial harassment. You know, there is such a thing as sexual harassment. That's real. You know, we we have had cases. There's a horrible case. Um, I'm forgetting what school is at, which uh, might be for for the best for purposes of this podcast. But uh, we saw a, a court case the other day where uh, the court reviewed the evidence and found that the school had, in fact, allowed a, a, a hostile environment to be established and did not take the necessary action against it. And it was uh, a complaint filed by a, uh, a student who was a member, I think, of the university marching band, which had been mostly white. He was a student of color, and he was just subjected to just a, a really shocking amount of uh, racial slurs in the name of hazing and, you know, quote-unquote jokes, that kind of thing, such that there was really no way that any reasonable person could uh, stick around and be in that band and feel equal. You know, it was just a, a classic example of a hostile environment. In fact, it was probably a hostile environment on steroids. You know, I mean, I think even like a, a quarter of the allegations contained in the complaint would have qualified for a hostile environment. And we want to remind people that, you know, if it is so severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive that you can't get your education and it's targeted against you on the basis of your class status, I mean, that, that's, that's harassment. Uh, now, does that mean that, you know, someone's political view that you don't like is, is harassment? No. Uh, does that mean that, you know, your political opponents should be reported to the authorities? No. Uh, but does it mean that some definitional clarity could probably go a long way? Yes. You know, and that, that's, that's important. And finally, Jill, just because I'm obviously on a roll here and, and talking a lot, the last thing I, I always try and remind students of, of from all kind of corners and all commitments is to uh, remember that if they call for the censorship of their uh, political opponents, it will come back to them. And we see this most clearly perhaps in the ongoing fight about Israel and Palestine on campuses nationwide, battle between students for justice in Palestine on the one side and pro-Israel uh, students on the other side. 
and this is maybe the nastiest, most intractable fight uh, that we've seen over the many years I've been here, just where one group will say, well, you're actually violating federal law. And the other group will say, no, actually, you're violating federal law. And then one group will try and change federal law. And one group will file lawsuits to change federal law. I mean, it's just, it gets nasty. And at some point, you just wish you could say, listen, both sides, take it easy. Here are the rules of the road. You're going to hear things you don't like. They're going to, you know, call you names. All that is political speech. If it means that uh, you can't attend class, then that's, you know, that now we're talking about something that's bigger than that. So anyway, that's that's kind of it. Uh, I could talk a lot on this. This is, as you have identified, the big challenge for us. Definitely. And I think it's, you know, an ongoing dialogue where, as conduct officers, we're looking to protect the rights uh, on our campuses of all students that are involved and take disciplinary action when it's appropriate and warranted. And what I hear a lot of especially new conduct officers struggling with is this concept of how do we really identify a reasonable person standard when it comes to severe and pervasive and limiting one's access to education? Because what's severe and pervasive and limiting to me may not be the same threshold that you envision mm-hmm, for the listeners mm-hmm. who, who have never seen neither will nor I will already identified himself as a white man. I identify myself as a woman of color. And, and so I'm, you know, constantly trying to think about how do we best give guidance to conduct officers who are trying to make that determination. So what do you think about that? That is such a good question. There's a great meme uh, on made the rounds on Twitter about a month ago. That was the old uh, end of the Scooby-Doo cartoons when, you know, Shaggy and Scooby and, and Wilma and Fred and the gang, you know, they've, they've apprehended the villain and they unmask him and they say, oh, it was you all along. You know, it's the great reveal that ended every half an hour of Scooby-Doo. And this one, it's, uh, it's you know, the gang and they're, they're unmasking objectivity, right? And then they pull the mask off and it says subjectivity. It's like, oh, objectivity, you were subjective all along. And I... <laughs> As a lawyer, that really gets you because so much of the law, <laughs> so much of the law is premised on the idea that we can have a reasonable person, you know. And I, I talked about uh, at the beginning of the podcast how I would come from, you know, critical theory studies as an undergrad. Well, I mean that that haunted me when I got to law school because I thought, wait a second, well, well, who, yeah, who is this reasonable person, you know? And and when, when you get to the harassment question, I mean, yeah, you're talking about an objective standard. Well, who who's objective? The Office for Civil Rights has given us a little bit of guidance in this part, and I, I think it's actually useful. I don't mean that like in a sarcastic actually. I mean that in a, in a real, real actually. They talk about looking at a constellation of all the factors. Uh, who's involved? You know, if it's a professor and a student, that's going to be one thing. If it's two students, it's going to be another thing. Uh, if, you know, is it, is it a, a, a comedy show or is it some, something hurled at somebody as they walk in a hall? You know, is it a misguided attempt at, uh, you know, at, at endearment or is it actually something malicious? And those are tough calls to make, but they're, they're highly contextual. I don't think you can make kind of uh, rules of the road, um, you know, like by the old kind of examples list, like, well, if you say this word, then that's automatically X, you know, because we're just not sure. We had this weird case uh, a couple of years ago where uh, white students and black students on the school football team were playing drinking games and the white, they're playing beer pong and the white students and black students were on the same team. And the team was apparently very successful at beer pong. And like when the white students sank a cup, you'd say white power. And then when the black students sank a cup, they'd say black power. And some student walked by in the hall and heard these like calls of like white power and black power and was like, you know, obviously kind of freaked out. 
and reported the, the students. And the students are both brought up on disciplinary charges, and the charges proceeded, even though both students said, hey, this was not unwelcome. We were joking. I mean, this is like kind of our, our joke together. We're friends. You know, so in that case, maybe that's an easy call, right? So you think, all right, context counts. But I, I think it's, that's where you begin. You know, you have to assess the context. Uh, I also think you have to give folks a little bit of room to make mistakes and learn, right? Because, I mean, I figure that not everybody comes into the college uh, environment, uh, particularly if they're kind of uh, a, uh, a quote-unquote traditional, to use the euphemism, student, and they're coming into college at 18 or 19, they're not fully formed human beings. As I know all of your listeners know all too well, probably far better than I do. Uh, they need some time to figure out what the uh, rules of uh, social interaction beyond their hometown are. Uh, and so I, I think it's important to give a little bit of space for students to talk to each other and to figure it out uh, together. Now, of course, if that turns malevolent, right, if someone says, hey, this is my, you know, this is how I'd like to be called, this is my name, or, you know, for example, these are, these are the pronouns they use, right, and the other person just ignores that and just malevolently says, no, you are going to use these, I, I think you're this. Well, at some point that starts becoming pretty clearly uh, entering into the realm of, what looks like uh, harassment, right? But if it's if it is kind of just eighteen year olds fumbling along at social interaction, I, I think that's something different. So, I don't know. It's it's tough. I start ending up sounding like uh, Judge Justice Potter Stewart uh, from the Supreme Court in the fifties. You know, the famous "I know it when I see it" when it comes to harassment. Uh, long story short, I think objectivity is real. As a lawyer, I kind of have to believe in that. Uh, but I think that you want to say objectivity, if I could assemble like kind of a random jury of, of the students' peers, you know, what would they think, right? If I could assemble uh, a, a random jury of the campus community, you know, including professors and, and, uh, and staff members, what would they think? I think those are probably good, good questions to have in mind when you think about objectivity. I think it's an ongoing challenge, and I also think about the social justice aspects of that reasonable person standard and that objectivity element, and is it really objective for everyone? And I know as an attorney, you mentioned that something you have to believe in, but I, you know, I'm guessing that you've seen things that make you question that. Where are you at kind of with your own development? Kind of where has it come from? Where has it gone in terms of the reality of objectivity and reasonable person standards? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, if, if your listeners have ever served on jury duty, I think that's kind of a fascinating thing um, to be uh, to be one member of a, of a democracy and to realize that, you know, so much of what we do and what the laws that we, we live by every day are constituted by is the fact that we are all uh, governed by them together and collectively and that if one of us uh, breaks a rule, then the rest of us will randomly select it, you know, discounting voir dire, which is the process where by attorneys uh, select their own jury pool, we will sit in judgment. You know, I mean, here in here in uh, Philadelphia, we've been thinking a lot about this the Bill Cosby trial, and those jurors could not reach a decision, and they'll try again in November. Uh, but it's not all comedians who heard the case, and it's not all you know, 70-year-old African-American or, or even white men. You know, it, it's a random assortment, or at least a, that's, that's more or less the idea. Uh, it's a jury of your peers, but peers largely defined. So I, I think that the idea that more of us know more than one of us, right, that's kind of the hope of democracy. And I, I, I guess that's what also what I still believe in, because I think that that objective person, that's a stand-in for citizenry in general. I had the privilege of working as a legal observer at a uh, local polling place. I took the day off work here and in Philly on election day and worked at one of the local wards 
uh, just helping voters come in uh, and and cast their vote. And it was it's really uh, amazing feeling to see everybody come out. You know, here is the 90-year-old Hispanic American grandmother with her kids. You know, here are the uh, new immigrants uh, from Russia who don't speak English yet, but uh, you know are, are citizens, you know, citizens and want to vote, right? You know, I mean, that just it was this incredible cross section. It was actually really interesting uh, neighbor in Philadelphia and, and really interesting electorate. And I'm thinking that again, democracy kind of depends on everybody having a say, and and hopefully that's what the objective person standard. I think that's the idea: is that you have to stand in. All, the idea of all of us has to stand in, whatever that idea means, and I think it's always mutating, and it will depend on who you're asking. But if you, if you ask everybody together, right, the collective voice, uh, the average and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and amalgamation, that's, that's what we're looking to capture. And it's a process. Yeah, I think it's really a process, but maybe that, that's, that's what I hope we strive for when we think about objectivity. Well, and that macro level is is so hard. I think uh, you know our our campus communities are often microcosms of our larger communities, and you know I think about your example of you know pulling the jury, for example, and not to get too far down the legal road because I'm not an attorney, I'm not trained as an attorney, but you know I think about things like the James Batson versus Kentucky case, which is the I guess for lack of a better term the gerrymandering of jury pools um, to mm-hmm, kind of mm-hmm. adjust that reasonable person standard, and I think about those things in our conduct processes and in freedom of expression. It, it, I think it's sometimes a topic where we just step back for a moment and go, my goodness, there is so much complexity to this issue. We don't know where to begin detangling that thread. Right. Yeah, it, it's, it's awful tough. It's awful tough. I go back to, to Chemerinsky, right, who, who talked, this is the Dean Erwin Chemerinsky now of, uh, of University of Berkeley and, and prior uh, at the uh, University of California Irvine uh, School of Law, he has made this point in, with regard to campus controversy over the last couple of years that the idea is to keep campus as open as possible to everybody. And and just like we have a a speeding limit for the road that's generally applicable and hopefully as easily ascertainable as possible, that's what you have to do uh, with students as well. And I also think about some of the um, the interesting orientation work that some schools have been doing lately. I think Berkeley's one of them. I know Purdue has been, been one of the schools that's been working on these lately, where when students arrive, have them trained as part of their orientation, not only in uh, questions about diversity and inclusion, but also in uh, how to how to talk to one another. What what free speech means, right? The the idea that yes, yeah, sometimes you will be offended. The idea that, that sometimes uh, that you will be challenged and you will be talking to different people. I think that's also useful because I I don't know. I mean I again I could go on for a long time. This is not the the podcast to do it on about the increasing polarization of the United States. I don't think it takes uh, much of a, a political scientist to to feel its creep all around us from one's Facebook feed or Twitter timeline to one's colleagues at work and so forth, or even just turning on the nightly news. But in that climate, I think one thing that's happening perhaps is that students are arriving on campus without feeling quite like they either need to pay attention or have ever had to pay attention to folks who disagree with them. And that allows for easy demonization of of people who don't agree with them. And that makes me a little bit nervous. Like, I don't expect folks to show up on campus speaking absolutely the way that their peers who are interested in social justice and have been on campus for four years uh, 
uh, speak, and I don't think they they really can be reasonably expected to do so, you know. And nor do I even think that they, or especially do I think that they need to do so, in order to have their speech protected by the First Amendment. You know, I, I think that we need to recognize that political disagreement is part of the process. You know, and as long as that disagreement uh, is is political disagreement doesn't turn into the kind of horrible. Uh, threats and things I mentioned earlier, I think that that's okay. You know, I, I think that recognizing that folks are going to disagree with you and you have the right to disagree with them right back, that's that's okay, but it, it's, it's the interaction that's important. That's the space that we have to guard at college. I think that's a, a wonderful place to uh, kind of wrap up our conversations. Will, I want to let you know how very appreciative I am of your willingness to spend time with the ASCA audience and would love to ask you what you're reading right now. What recommendations do you have for the audience? <laughs> That's a good question. Right now I'm reading an awful lot of uh, the collected works of Richard Scarry for my two-year-old son. <laughs> I'm, reading <a> lot. <laughs> I'm reading a lot of uh, Mother Bear and, and Little Bear, which is also sweet. Um, in my free time, I try not to read uh, any legal stuff. I try, And I'm also trying to wean myself off of a pretty serious Twitter addiction. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to catch up on this back stack of uh, New York reviews of books uh, that I have uh, on, my, uh, on my plate. But seriously, the, the kind of the big book that sit next, sits next to me right now uh, is the first edition of the Oxford History of the United States about the American Revolution. And that is a kind of a fascinating and, and deeply depressing uh, book in its own right, thinking about the, the vagaries of history and how things might have been different. Otherwise, I'm not, uh, I did, did study a lot of history as an undergrad, and I'm always kind of, I'm the guy who likes to stop and read the historical plaque whenever I'm out somewhere. But uh, what I think I find really most interesting about this particular history of the revolution is just how uh, small, uh, intimate is not quite the word, but how how um, relatively small the bands of, of folks uh, were who made various differences, uh, either in organizing or uh, in sustaining the home fires or whatever, uh, even just fighting each other in the war. I mean, you've got groups of 800 people on one side, 800 people on the other side. It just seems like brutally human, small groups of people out in the woods in the middle of February bleeding. I mean, my goodness, it's it's pretty harrowing. Um, so I, I read some of that, and then I, I play a game with words with friends and, and try and go to bed. <laughs> that's, that's about where I am. So some very light bedtime reading followed by Scrabble. I like it. Uh, well, as yeah. a, a past resident of Brooklyn, and for me as a current resident of Brooklyn, I hope you appreciated our Revolutionary War history while you were here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's part of it. You know, you, you realize... Um, how how far back some of that goes and you know the old George Washington slept here well yeah he probably really did <laughs> so that's interesting I come from uh, my mom's side is uh, is a long line of Quakers and uh, so that's it's interesting to see the way uh, various uh, religious commitments did and did not interact with the the uh, quote unquote war effort I don't know I mean the, the other thing that I think is I kind of read it as a relief. Um, in some ways, it's because it makes you realize that, to paraphrase the poet William Carlos Williams, you know, history is always uh, swaying in the wind. It can go this way or that way. It feels uh, like uh, something very old and dead by the time it gets to us. But uh, our present historical moment is, is you know, alternately terrifying and darkly funny, but uh, it's also wildly contingent upon what all of us do. I mean, nothing is decided. So I, I like reminding myself of that, that uh, things can still go each way and that uh, one day people will be reading about the summer of 2017 and 
uh, thinking about it quite differently and wondering what we all might have thought of it. So that's good perspective too. And it, you know, now it, and, and campuses are a fascinating place to work, as all of all of uh, your listeners know on that front. Definitely. Well, um, Will, if people want to reach out to you or get more information on FIRE, where can they go? Yeah, they can go to FIRE's website, www.thefire.org. You can write me. I'm will at thefire.org. I have this phone on me all the time, uh, which is both a blessing and a curse, um, but I will always try and write back. I'm happy to uh, help out in whatever way I can. I actually just had the privilege and honor of looking at somebody's... um, early uh, doctoral dissertation uh, as a kind of advanced reader of that. So, yeah, I'm here here to help. Uh, that's what we do. And I can also be reached via phone uh, 215-717-3473, extension 214. So, oh, I'm on Twitter, too, uh, at uh, Will at Fire. I'm not posting as much as I maybe should, probably lurking more than, uh, than is uh, uh, desired. But, uh, yeah, I can also be reached there. So, variety of ways to uh to ask me to talk more <laughs> excellent and if you're interested in reaching the podcast you can email us at asca podcast at gmail.com that's asca p-o-d-c-a-s-t at gmail.com or you can also tweet us at asca podcast thank you so much will for sharing your viewpoint today hey thanks Joe. it's been a real pleasure Next week on the ASCA Viewpoints podcast, we welcome Dr. Joyce Esther. Dr. Esther is the president of Normandale Community College, and she rose up to that position through a student conduct career trajectory. She'll be talking about her time as a conduct officer and how that has served her as an institutional president. If you're enjoying the podcast, we ask that you go ahead and rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Those ratings and reviews really help other professionals find our podcast and helps expand our general listenership. If you are interested in becoming a guest on the podcast or you think that you have a good suggestion, please feel free to reach out to us via our social media or by email. We hope you'll come back next week and listen. This episode was hosted and produced by Jill Creighton, that's me, co-produced, edited, and mixed by Colleen Mater, associate produced by Trevor Stewart. Special thanks to New York University's Office of Student Conduct and Community Standards for allowing us the time and space to create this project.